0: This morning I want to talk to you about light. Do I need to start this? There we go. Some time ago I read a book all about life, or light, that represented the various components and qualities in light, which I must confess I will definitely need to read a couple more times because understanding the physics of that is way beyond this comprehension. But the concept of light's absoluteness really impressed me. You see, light never changes. It stays the same no matter what its circumstances are. Um, And this unchangeableness of light is especially noticed in the speed department. Light travels, as you probably know, at nearly 186,300 miles per second. In the time it took me to say that, light went to Hong Kong and back about 9,000 times. I mean, it blows my mind. But anyway, the thing that really surprises me about it is it doesn't contain a relativity component. What I mean by that is, if I'm traveling at 60 miles an hour and you're traveling at 60 miles an hour, we relatively could stand still and communicate with each other because we're both going the same. doesn't change there. Light doesn't care if I'm already going 60 miles an hour. It stays at its regular speed. In other words, if I am able to travel at 500 miles an hour and at the same time shoot a bullet that travels at about 1,500 miles an hour, relatively, that bullet is going at 2,000 miles an hour. Um, But light doesn't care that I'm already going that way. It changes not. It doesn't care if I'm going zero or if I'm going 500 miles an hour. It's still going to do its 186,300 miles per second, thus making light an absolute. It does not change even when the circumstances do. And there are very few things in this world that have that kind of absoluteness. However. God changes not. He is the absolute that we can depend on. And it would seem that there are quite a few of light's characteristics that are also reflective of God and who he is. So when God says, I am light, it is more literal than my first understanding. God spoke, and light entered this dark planet. Before God, there was dark. After God entered here, there was a space that darkness had to stay put. There was a before and after. Have you ever seen those before and after commercials? You know, the ones where you're going to lose 150 pounds in two weeks? Or maybe some special cream's going to make you look 50 years younger after about seven applications? Yeah, right. Um, John's gospel that I want to look at today has a lot of that in it. He likes to tell stories of before the person met Jesus and after they met Jesus. As you know, it was written quite a while after the other Synoptic Gospels, and so John tends to focus on the fact that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. Because John's Gospel gets into these a little bit deeper spiritual issues, I believe it requires additional prayer and study and thought. Father in heaven, we're going to open your word. We're going to look at a story about a man, and we pray that your spirit is here to teach us something from this story that will change our lives so that we have an after picture of who we are too. Thank you, Jesus, in his name. All right, I'm gonna share with you one of my favorite before and after stories. It's found in the book of John. It's of a man who was born blind. He sits begging every day and he's touched by Jesus. When the light gets a hold of him, his life has changed dramatically. It really is the epitome of a before and after story. My good news is the light got a hold of me too. Now, if you will, open your Bibles to John 9, and we're going to look at this before and after story and see how light took a hold of this man. From the beginning of John's book, Jesus has been introduced as light. You know, in the very first chapter, John the Baptist is, is, um, says that he was sent to bear witness to the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then just before the story we're going to look at today, Jesus boldly declares in John 8 12 that I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Thus, it's no surprise that in the story of the man born blind, Jesus reminds his disciples of just this fact. But what is surprising is that he does so in, a, in response to a question that follows an assumption. The disciples, like most Jews of the time, and probably too many of us today, believe that this man's blindness is the result of some terrible wrongdoing done by either he or his parents. What a stigma this poor man had to live with. Not only is he stuck being blind and begging for a living, But he also has to live with the thought that he's done some terrible sin to bring this on. So let's begin our story in John 9, verse 2. The disciples ask, "Um, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Have I ever assumed that bad things happened to me because... I am more bad than someone else? Have you ever assumed the same? I do remember often questioning God, why someone struggled so? What did I do to make their life so miserable? However, Jesus sees it differently, and he addresses his disciples and their assumptions and mine, showing me that I got it all wrong. You see, in verse 3, Jesus reveals the purpose of this blindness. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but it is that the works of God might be displayed in him." Okay, that's a thought I can run with. Did you ever think that perhaps your struggles or troubles are because God is being displayed in you? Is divinity being displayed in me? I know he promised not to give me more than I could handle, but the part that we often forget in that little saying we always have is the second part where he said he would provide the way to conquer it. Perhaps the truth of it all is that he really wants me to trust him muchly. Clearly, to view troubles as God sees them as a way to bring a knowledge of himself to someone triggers relief from the mental anguish that's associated with those troubles we have to face. Going on with this story in verse 4 and 5, Jesus reminds them that while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And the miracle that follows this dialogue is an enacted parable of Jesus' ministry. You see, it's focusing on the great I am, and in this case, the specificness of I am Light. As we go through this story, I want you to focus with me on progression. The progression of the blind man and the progression of others in this story. Moving on to verses six and seven. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Then he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam So he went and washed and came back to seeing. Do you notice the progression steps here um, that were required for the man to come to to light? First, Jesus makes clay. Jesus applies it to his eyes. Jesus sent him away to wash. Acting on his mustard seed of faith, the man went away, the man washed, and the man comes back seeing. Those six actions are the miracle itself, that once faithfully performed brought about seeing, and yet those actions are only the beginning of the story. Continuing our focus on two progressions that occur, we see the blind man moves towards spiritual sight, and others, specifically the Pharisees in this story, are moving towards spiritual darkness. The man's progression actually makes him look different. Something like a before and after picture. Because the neighbors and others who saw him and knew him before don't recognize him. They think he looks like that beggar they used to know. But they're not sure. Verse 8 says that the neighbors and those who had previously seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? And he assures them when he said, I am he. Then they asked, then how come you see? So the man shares his story of how he met Jesus. You see, your story is yours. How you met Jesus may not be quite as dramatic and thrilling as this man's was, but the real miracle to be shared is not what happens externally, but it's what happens in the heart or as I like to say, what happens to your DNA when Jesus appears in your life. Your journey is yours. And just like this man, that journey is the miracle that is to be shared. At this point, we note the man's progression of faith and belief. He starts his story in verse 11 by calling Jesus the man. A man called Jesus made clay and put it on my eyes. I went and washed, and I came back seeing. That's when he received his physical sight. He is progressing towards spiritual sight, and as it becomes more apparent, he calls Jesus a prophet. Verse 27 later says that he boldly declares that Jesus is from God, or Jesus, excuse me, Jesus is worthy to be followed. Verse 33 brings him to say that Jesus is from God, and in verse 38, Jesus is God. It is at this point that the question the people are asking is where is he? If this man made you well, where is he? Apparently, they want to see this man too. But the former blind man has no idea, he's never seen Jesus. Verse verse 13, excuse me, brings the Pharisees into the story. And we see the Pharisees' progression going on the opposite direction toward doubt because they've rejected Jesus. They start out confused. Some of them state Jesus can't be from God because he broke the demands of the Sabbath. Others wonder how he could um, do such signs if if he was a sinner, wasn't following God. In verse 16, they actually declare that this man could not be from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who does such signs be a sinner? They're divided, they're confused, and they're doubtful. Because they can't explain this miracle, they're going to just reject it, reject Jesus because they claim that they're followers of Moses. I wonder if the lesson I need to learn from this is some things are not meant to be totally understood immediately. Rather, they require a little bit of contemplation and thought, at least until there is an opening that God can shed additional light. However, you see, the questions they're having are not the problem. We're all on a journey and sometimes are confused. At least I am. I've had lots of things I wonder about. Questioning can move us to a renewed faith when we continue to seek Jesus for the answers and move toward the light. Questioning is only dangerous when it prompts us to rely on our own understanding or traditions rather than the Holy Spirit's promptings. That's what leads to the progression of cynicism, sarcasm, and disbelief that results in further confusion. Even then, it's refreshing to know that God continues to pursue us. He wants to shed his additional light, and this has got to be true because you see how often he continued to work with and to pursue the Pharisees trying to open their minds. Continuing our story, though, we see that they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees. Why? Because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. Hmm. Because it's the Sabbath, this situation calls for legal advice. This action is a violation of the law, because Jesus made clay. You see, kneading, or the making of the clay, was one of those 39 classes of work that was forbidden on the Sabbath. They instruct, and then he instructed the man to go wash. No, no, no washing allowed on Sabbath. What is worse, this is a repeat offense. This isn't the first time Jesus did such a thing. Um, And on top of this, jesus commands another one to break the sabbath by telling him to go wash there's no making clay there's no washing allowed on sabbath either so it's off to the lawyers we go this has to be one of the most paradoxical stories in all the gospels the pharisees end up rejecting jesus in the name of the sabbath the creator and lord of the sabbath will be rejected because he didn't keep the Sabbath appropriately. Hmm, kind of reminds me of the time that Charlie Chaplin entered a, anonymously entered a chaplain look-alike contest, and he came out in third place. The Pharisees now want to know what happened. And again, the blind man gives his testimony of what happened. It's his story. He's sticking to it. He applied clay to my eyes. I washed, and now I see. But this is when the story brings the division that we talked about to the Pharisees. Some are focused on the breaking of the Sabbath, and some are concentrate on the magnitude of the sign. Now it's time for me to ask, where is my focus? Is it leading me to a progression toward or away from Jesus? Where do my questions lead me? Do I answer them myself or do I give God the t- opportunity to shed his light? The dilemma that faces the Pharisees is that they're the experts of the long-accepted interpretation of Bible-keeping or Sabbath-keeping laws found in the Bible, according to them, all 600-plus of them. They know and they've accepted that they come from Moses. Apparently, they forgot where Moses got the law. Um, they forgot to read the part that, He got the law from Jesus. So even though these signs that Jesus has performed could not have been done by a sinner, they're confused on what is going on here. They refuse to let go of their long-held belief, and this teaching thing from Jesus just doesn't fit in. So what do they do with it? Even with the powerful evidence that Jesus provided, their refusal to see the light causes much confusion and division. Oh, God, open my eyes to see the light. The Pharisees are so perplexed by this blind man's, um, what's happened here with, with the blind man, that they even ask the blind man his opinion. This is unheard of among the Pharisees. Ask a commoner for his opinion? Oh, no. No, 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 no. That's not allowed. It's not normal and yet adds intrigue to this story. In verse 17, they demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? Now's when the blind man goes on to step three, or step two, excuse me, and he admits freely that he is a prophet. He gives the highest praise he knows how. He assumes Jesus is a prophet. He is progressing toward the light, but the Pharisees are not. Since they can't explain the miracle via their own interpretations, they don't want to discredit it. And now's when they suggest maybe he was not born blind anyway. Call in his parents. Let's ask them. Maybe, maybe we'll figure out the, the dilemma that's here. So the Jews did not believe concerning him, this is in verse 18, that he had been born blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And asked, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? It's now that fear cripples the parents, as you can see from verse 22 fear of me- what men will do to them. The Pharisees had already promised that anyone who accepted this man as the Messiah would be thrown out of the um, tab- temple. They are afraid. Fear has paralyzed them. It's a strong motivator. Fear can be a strong motivator, especially when it's exerted by ones who are supposed to be the brokers of God's law and of God's grace. Note to self, demonstrate a God full of grace while remembering that the opposite pushes others to fear. And some of those others are often those closest to me. Could it be that I have pushed my children, my family, or even some of my close friends away from God when his grace and compassion should have been presented first? If indeed the keepers of the law had been followers of Moses, should not they present the grace and compassion of our God as a starting point? You see, God saved me before he asked me to follow him. And he gives me the ability to follow. When I see the grace and love of God demonstrated, his law backs it up, pointing out who he is and who he wants me to be. So when I finally get it, the grace that is, then it is that I don't want another God or I don't want to disgrace such a great friend. And I don't want to be in another God's presence. I certainly don't want to slander his great name, but I prefer to spend the time that he has set aside for us to be together and rest in rejuvenation. How it's going to look to others? I definitely hold a special place in my heart for the parents that he gave me. And I do not want to hurt another of God's children in any way. Lying to them is out of the question. And respect for their possessions is paramount. Of course, I'm content with the partner Jesus gave me, and with my possession. Jesus has supplied all my needs." Again, I digress from the story, but the point is, God and me have a relationship built on his grace and compassion. That leads to a desire to please him. The question, then, is my attitude toward God and his law driving others to fear and turn from him, or to love and come to him? In our story, it seems that the parents are not interested in learning more about Jesus because of the influence of the law um, keepers, and they turn away. Since the Pharisees have given away their case by admitting that a miracle has been performed, the man was born blind, and they can obviously see that he now sees, their embarrassment necessitates that they intimidate those around us around them and the man. Jesus is their real target, never forget that. But instilling fear in others may help deflect the issue enough to cause fear and doubt to someone else. It's the fear that caused the parents to stick to just the facts that they know. And we read in our next couple verses, we know this is our son and that he was born blind. How he sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He's an adult. He can speak for himself. In other words, we are out of here. We don't know anything. We didn't see anything. We're washing our hands of this. Ask him. And now the lines have been drawn. The Jews against Jesus and this former blind man for Jesus. In the final part of the narrative, both sides are becoming increasingly bold. The Pharisees realize that it's not productive to further interrogate the parents, but still they won't give up. And so they ask the blind man to share his story again. This is now the third time he tells his story. It looks a lot like intimidation tactic number 101 to me. But in verse 24, the Pharisees begin with, God should get the glory for this. We know um, who God, God is, but we don't know this man. Jesus is obviously a sinner. The man responds, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But I do know. I was blind, and now I see. He knows one thing. Because of Jesus, he can see. Now's when we get to the ironic part. The Pharisees ask to hear the story again. In verse 26, they say, How did he do it to you? How did he open your eyes? Did you notice that the Pharisees, like the devil, don't give up? They keep plugging along at their pointed efforts. They're going to try to distract us from the one thing we know. Jesus is the reason. I see and now this now this time that former blind man is wise to them and in verse 27 he said I told you already and you didn't listen why do you want to hear it again do you want to become his disciples too (laughs) this ain't no ex-beggar here he is bold and his argument is flawless he has met Jesus Two important facts are revealed here showing the progression of the two groups. The Pharisees are exposed by this new disciple of Jesus. Their motives are revealed, and they don't like it. But the former blind man moves on to step three. And in his progression journey, fully admitting that he is a disciple of Christ. Even though he's never seen him, doesn't know what he looks like, he's decided Christ is worthy to be followed. Another note to self. Even though I don't know what he looks like physically, I know he is the reason I see. This is too much for the Pharisees to handle, and they express the one thing they know. You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. Your one thing is Jesus. Our one thing is Moses. John has already made it clear in his gospel where Jesus came from in the very beginning of the book. Jesus is not against Moses, but Moses received the law from God, and Jesus is the demonstration of that law, the grace and truth of the law. So the reader of John's gospel knows exactly what's going on. However, the Pharisees are convinced otherwise, and they will not budge. Moses is the one to be chosen over Jesus. Their pride's not gonna allow them to move further. They're not gonna change their mind, even though they've had a powerful demonstration um, of the fact that this man cannot be a sinner. They've backed themselves into a corner and they can't get out of it, so they must resort to drastic measures. They are the final word on this matter, at least in their own thinking. Ouch. I wonder, does my pride block me from seeing Jesus as he is? But I see how the unintimidated blind man catches on that they're going around in circles. And he replies, this is an amazing thing. And I am casting my lot with Jesus. I find it hard to believe that you religious experts that you are cannot figure out such an obvious thing as this. Ever since the world began, it has not been heard that anyone born blind could see. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Next step achieved. Jesus is from God. That's it. Pharisees have had it. This young upstart has no right to talk to them about that in such a manner. You are born blind, or you're born in sin, and you are teaching me, teaching us? No, no, we're the religious people, and you know nothing. How dare you argue with us? Circle's been completed. Remember the beginning of the story when the disciples had asked um, who had sinned this man, that this man had been born blind? We were told that it was in order to reveal God. God's revealed right here, and the Pharisees choose not to see it. They reject it. They've been been given another opportunity to see God. However, instead of beholding God, they throw the former blind man out of the synagogue. Conversation over. Done with that. Story's complete. Is it? The conclusion of this narrative is the climax of the story. The results of the two progressions are prominently revealed. First, to the former blind man, Jesus appears. Pause and let that sink in. Are you progressing toward Jesus? If so, he appears. Watch for him. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of God? Now my turn to respond. The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. I get to choose. I get to decide what I want. Do I want to believe in him? Jesus now is revealing himself fully to this excommunicated ex-beggar. You have both seen him, and he is the one talking to you now. This is the moment that the once physically blind man receives his spiritual sight. His progression has led him to realize that Jesus is someone to be worshipped, and he believes in him. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshipped Jesus. This is the first time that the former blind man sees Jesus, and the revelation of Jesus has such an impact that he has no choice but to worship, it seems. I love it that the Bible doesn't go into explaining what this worship thing is all about. Um, further indicating to me that perhaps it, it's like the song, I can only imagine. Don't panic, I'm not going to sing, I'll say that in to your ears. But I imagine each of us has a different concept of what this worship thing is all about. And even my thought of what worship would look like now may be different than what my worship thing will be when in the light I truly see him. The point of the whole story, though, is worship he did. The former blind man has progressed from total darkness to worshiping his Lord and Savior, The climax is reached. You have both seen him and talked to him, physically, spiritually. He sees Jesus is God, and he worships. Unfortunately, I find that I must mention the rest of the story. The opposite of wanting to see is spiritual blindness. The result of choosing not to see causes the other progression, as revealed in verse 39, where it's added, For judgment I came to the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see or think they see may become blind. Confusing, and yet this entire gospel is written so that you can see what meets the eye and what is accessed through belief in Jesus that brings with it the advanced spiritual sight. So did Jesus come for judgment? Judgment, as seen from other chapters in John, especially just the previous one, John 8, does not include condemnation. Rather, judgment is the recognition that some will choose to stay in darkness rather than come to light. Judgment is not light's purpose. It is the recognition that the consequence of rejecting the light is what judgment is. Jesus came to our dark planet to bring light, fully knowing that there would be some who would rather live in darkness, in the darkness they knew, and that the consequences, or judgment, would have to follow. But he came so that those, you and me, who would want to see their way out of darkness, had the opportunity to come to light. When some of the Pharisees heard Jesus' words on the blind seeing and the seeing ones becoming blind, they thought that of all people in the world, they could not possibly be blind. And they asked, are we blind too? Jesus' response, according to my English, is profound. You think you know, and you say you know. You say others don't know. If you were blind, you could seek light. But you think you know and don't need light. Therefore, light judges you by its very presence. I am the light of the world, and you have rejected me. Therefore, the really sad part is that your sin remains. Since you already know it all, there's nothing that light can do to dispel the darkness and forgive your sins. I like to think, though, that the fact that the John 9 says there are some Pharisees, I like to think that the other some of the Pharisees were possibly included in Acts 2, who later came to believe in the light, Could it be that when thousands were baptized in the same day that some Pharisees who questioned why in this story actually are included in those who came to believe? I know I speculate too much, but it's still very likely. I do know that Jesus continues to shed his light, and where it is believed, it will heal blindness, even in some Pharisees. This is a piercing story, paradoxical dialogues, opposite progressions, exposed motives, and ironic conclusions. In the past, I felt chastised by this story as I regarded my own religious arrogance and pride that hinders light's healing. Now, now that I know there are many things I do not know, now that I have caught a glimpse of the light and I'm walking toward the light, His amazing grace has captured me. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. This one thing I know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Now I'm found, was blind, but now I see.